This week's podcast is sponsored by Direction. Welcome to another episode of Investing with IBD Podcast. It's Justin Nielsen, your host, and it is November 1st, 2023. Glad we have October behind us. And joining me on the show, as he always does, is Arusha Paris. He's an O'Neill Global Advisors Portfolio Manager. How are you doing, Arusha? I'm doing well, Justin. Yeah, so a uh, little bit of trick-or-treating last night. I, I think I'm okay with the Reese's uh, that I stole from my son. Um, I, I don't think he'll notice, but uh, we also have on the show joining us, it's uh, Joe Fami, and uh, he is a portfolio manager and financial analyst uh, advisor at Zor Capital. Uh, he's known as follow-through day Fami, so I'm sure we're ha- going to have to talk about the follow-through day today uh, in the market. We're also going to talk about different things you can be using as guardrails, uh, some of the weakest uh, weeks in the market, and of course, a few stocks that are on his radar. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Thank you for having me. I'm excited, as always, to talk markets with you guys. Yeah, and I, I just, I, I don't know when I'll learn. It's like, if you're going to be on IBD Live or the podcast, it just seems like that's the time, you know, buy futures, buy options, back up the truck, because good things happen uh, when Joe Fami is in the house. So thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, let's get right to it. Uh, the market, uh, we've got the NASDAQ composite. You know, it was up the most today um, and uh, 1.6%. Uh, NASDAQ 100 up a little bit more, um, and it's it's a follow-through day. We got a fourth day follow-through day. Uh, we bottomed. Now, look, the first day of the rally, I got to admit, I was not impressed, uh, you know, when you have a strong day that closes poorly. Um, but here we are. We got we got the volume. We got the uh, we got the percentage move. Uh, what What's your take? Yeah, I always like to look at the positives and the negatives. So, Let's review some of the positives. Uh, We had three legs down since about Mm mid-July on the NASDAQ. So you had one wave down into about August 18th, the second wave down until the end of September, and then a third wave down that just undercut the 200 days. So I know O'Neill talks about some of these pullbacks, even bear markets, you get two to three legs down. So I think it's good that we've uh, completed, hopefully completed a third leg down. Uh, another positive is seasonality heading into November, December, two of the strongest months of the year. So that's another positive uh, sentiment from a contrarian point of view. I like to look at a broad uh, spectrum of sentiment measures, and they're all at the low end of bullishness, high end of bearishness, whether it's NAIM, um, active investment managers at their lowest level since the October of 22 low, Put to call ratios, uh, all the different ones collectively are showing high levels of bearishness. So that's a good thing as well. And then we had the follow through day, but I wanted to point out something specific about today's follow through day that seems a little bit different for me is that the volume is higher uh, than is right a, a little bit above that above average volume line that you have there on MarketSmith, mm-hmm. where to compare to the August 29th follow through day. Yes, it was on higher volume than the previous day, but it was on below average volume. The October 6th follow-through day was also on higher volume than the previous day, but also on below average volume. So one of the things that sticks out uh, for me today is that we're on above average volume. Mm-hmm. So you using that, did you adjust your strategy a little bit? Did you maybe get a little bit more aggressive uh, on this follow-through day and add a little bit more to some positions or new positions? 
Yeah, I definitely added exposure today. I know one of the things, uh, and you guys probably would clarify the rule, but uh, or one of the sayings is on the fall through day, look at the new high list, maybe some strong relative strength names, stocks that held up well during this pullback. Mm-hmm. So I think O'Neill says maybe put a little bit of money to work in some of those stronger names. So that's exactly what I did today. And there's a lot of intangibles. As Scott O'Neill, I love his phrase that the fall through day is an art. There's an art to it. Where I yeah. think if you ta- if you if you put in all those factors of seasonality and um, the sentiment and everything, I think this makes this gives one a little bit more potential. Also, the Fed pause today or reiterated it was uh, two two meetings in a row with the Fed pause. I think that's the biggest thing that the instant that's been holding the institutions back from putting money to work. So I think the institutions are interpreting this as there's no more rate hikes uh, until year end. And I don't want to say the coast is clear, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Now I know for a while there, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff you're doing on Twitter Spaces and um, stuff was about a lot more of the macro, you know, especially with interest rates. And I, you know, one of my favorite things that you did was the the, the most important Fed meeting ever, you know, or something like that. Yeah, you know, I think a year ago. Um, if we just pull up the 10-year treasury, I mean, one of the issues is that the 10-year treasury has been doing a lot of the work for the fed you know with with the the move up to nearly five percent it was kind of like well you know what we don't really have to do anything the 10-year is taking care of it for us so is that is that kind of part of your analysis too with uh the fed pause yeah the thing with macro is if you obsess it's not that i don't like macro is that i don't like to obsess about too many factors because you can really go down that deep dark rabbit hole and it just becomes too negative in my view. So a lot of people are saying, why is this correction happened? Or why is this pullback happened? I think the biggest thing to focus on in the macro is the interest rates, the direction of interest rates. Yes, there's other factors, geopolitical concerns in the Middle East, maybe concerns of a recession, other unknown things with maybe a banking crisis. But once you start getting down and thinking about too much, I don't like to overthink things. I like to keep it simple. And as far as the macro goes, keep it simple with interest rates. And I, it is it is a factor from here, but I think that maybe if interest rates have topped out and we can start to see the direction head back down, that's why from here after a follow through day, I'd like to see interest rates stabilize or come back down, not see any heavy distribution and see an additional follow through day in the next week or two. Yeah. So now when looking at this chart, um, what what does it uh, say to you that? I mean, it might be a little too early to know that it's it's topping, but you know, what what are your thoughts? I pulled up the weekly chart of the tenure. I'd like to think five percent might be that sort of round number cap. Uh, I think it's becoming again when people are getting too obsessed with it, it's recency bias. So yeah. mm-hmm. we sat at 10, 12 years of basically zero under one percent rates, right. and then all of a sudden we've never seen in the history of the markets a five hundred basis point hike in in twelve months. So now everyone's just saying, okay, interest rates are going to seven, ten percent. I don't think that the Fed wants that. And to Justin's point, that um, the ten year rising has done some of that work, some of that tightening for the Fed. So I could see it stabilizing around here, if not uh, heading lower into year end, maybe anticipating some rate cuts at some point in 2024. Mm-hmm. Now, Joe, you often are looking at different technical levels. Um, so if, if we go back to the NASDAQ, uh, certainly 13,000 is a nice round number that seemed like it was acting as a floor until this you know 
third wave down where we undercut it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? We we hit both the 13,000 level and the 200-day line, and now we're back, back above it. Um, but we do have kind of this, you know, these lower highs uh, of a downtrend. Is there any particular level that you're looking at for a little extra, a little extra tuck you in to make you feel safe at night? Well, after the fall today, I like to use the low of the recent level. I, I don't, you know, I think the market loves to shake out the weak hands and loves mm -hmm. to undercut on both stocks and the indices, those round numbers or those recent levels or those obvious Everyone's a technician now, knows the 50-day, the 200-day. <laughs> so I think the market is – I like that it undercut 13,000. I like that it undercut the uh, August and September lows, and I like that it undercut the 200-day. So my key level would be that recent low that I would be watching that I would like to see hold, which would be just pulling out the, the 10.26 low of about 12.5 would be uh, yeah. just the recent uh, – you know, from where the rally attempt, the low of where the rally attempt started. And what about the just underneath the surface where a lot of stocks have broken key moving averages? And so it's it's still pretty narrow on, on the stocks that are above like their 150 day moving averages. Are you looking at any of those kind of gauges to get give you a little bit of an idea that, hey, maybe there are enough stocks that are setting up that could lead this market higher? Yeah, that's that's a great point, because when I talk about being open minded, looking at the positives and the negatives, one of the biggest positives is there are stocks that are above their 50 days, some of the mega caps, some of the software, enterprise software names. So that's a positive. It's also a negative because I feel like the rest of the market is, for the most part, is below the 50 days. So I would like to see it become a little bit more broad based. That's why I said from here, maybe some backing and filling, no big distribution days. And then not only an additional follow through day I'd like to see, but more stocks setting up more stocks, whether it's retail, there are some oil and gas holding up well, but some other growth sectors, especially semiconductors coming back to life, I'd like to see it broaden out with more stocks getting above that 50 day. And if we're just patient, I think that can happen, uh, especially given the strong seasonality coming up. Yeah, I was a little, uh, I guess, underwhelmed by some of the uh, advancers versus decliners lately. Um, it seemed like on the downside, we were seeing numbers like, you know, six to one in favor of the decliners. And on the upside, it was more like, oh, you know, I mean, it was good sometimes, you know, but it was struggling to get to two to one. Um, even today on the NASDAQ, um, I, I think as I was looking at Thinkorswim, um, you know, it had, you know, 2280 for the advancers on the NASDAQ and 1990 for decliners, which, I mean, that's not, that's not a big margin in favor of the, the advancers. Um, certainly, one of the things we've been looking at is this uh, GMIAB on MarketSmith. Um, you know, big downtrend in the advanced decline line and the NASDAQ. Um, is, is there anything that, you, is this something that you look at? Uh, we have this 10-day line on there, uh, moving average line that we are, you know, near getting above potentially. Um, but is this, uh, is, is this too, I guess, broad? Um, is it just good enough to have a few that are working. Uh, how no, much do you I mean, need? Not at all. I I do want it. I do look at that. I look at new highs, new lows, advanced decline. I want to see breadth in the market. If you have a sign of a healthy market, is if you have a whole bunch of fundamentally strong growth stocks. Meaning, mm -hmm. you know, risk on is people putting money into growth, not defensive utilities or staples. So you have growth stocks with strong fundamentals, strong earnings and sales, strong profit margins, building strong technical bases, and breaking out 
and holding their breakout, breaking out on strong volume, not breaking out and giving it all back as they do in difficult or corrective markets. And then to the last point, the broader, the better. So, of course, I want to see it broaden out. But, you know, let's not forget that if this turns into a new uptrend, a new power trend, uh, a healthier market, it'll take a little bit of time to develop and there'll be plenty of time uh, to make money. So for sure, that's one thing I want to see over the next couple of weeks is the number of sectors broaden out. So it's and, still and, time to be patient, really. <laughs> yeah, and, and we're also in earnings season too, right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, what are your thoughts so far about how earnings season's going? I thought I think a lot of the earnings were very strong. It was just a function of the markets where instead of buy the dip, they were selling the rip. Like Microsoft had great earnings. They sold it off. I thought Meta's earnings were strong. Triple digit growth, they sold it off. So I think it was just a function of end of October, a lot of mutual fund adjustments, mutual fund fiscal year ending, seasonality and so forth. So I thought the earnings were strong. It could just be, again, part of that shakeout before the market tends to run, you do get a little bit of a shakeout. So let's, I'm trying to be optimistic that maybe it was just a shakeout or, uh, you know, shaking out some of the weak hands, but I thought some of the earnings were very strong. Mm -hmm. And are there any uh, particular sectors that are kind of getting more of your attention um, where you're seeing, you know, particular strength? You already talked about how it's been nice to not see the complete flight to defense with like staples and utilities and all of that. Um, Are there any other, uh, any areas that you are looking uh, particularly at? When I screen using MarketSmith and I try to look at some great fundamentals, great technicals, the majority are coming from software. So software security, so enterprise software, they mm-hmm. tend to have very good profit margins, benefiting from AI and so forth. So uh, that's probably the number one growth sector that's showing up on my screens. Yeah. And what about those Magnificent Seven? I mean, that was one of the things that was really kind of... Uh, pushing the indexes higher for a long time, even without the breadth, um, are those still kind of top of mind for you? Yeah, as far as stocks above the 50-day, even Amazon had that shakeout before earnings and Meta as well, Microsoft, um, NVIDIA recently undercut that August low, could be sort of a double bottom, or as we talk about, sometimes the market just wants to undercut certain key levels that are obvious. So as far as the MAG-7, a lot of them are coming back and if there is a uh, chase of performance into year end, that's where the big institutions have no choice but to put money to work in some of those big liquid names. So it's something to keep in mind as well. So mm-hmm. generally just, I mean, that's, it just seems like the market is still leaning mostly towards kind of the larger cap tech names versus the small cap, which are still still, still uh, a lot, well, plenty of damage. That gonna, it's going to need a lot more time for those. Yeah. Stuff. Uh, with the higher rates that affects especially IWM, small caps, MDY, mid caps, you're absolutely right. Those have just been, those charts are ugly. They didn't really participate as much as the markets today. Uh, with higher rates, that's restrictive for lending and can really affect businesses that are, uh, you know, unprofitable. And, uh, you know, especially some of the biotechs that rely on lending for their, to get through their phase trials and so forth. So that's another uh, negative right now. But if I would like to see that firm up to add to the breadth of the overall market if small and mid-caps can participate. Yeah. Great stuff, Joe. When we come back, we're going to talk to Joe a little bit about some of the ways he uses guardrails in his investing to protect his capital, cut losses, and make sure he's holding on to stocks that are working well. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Trading Apple, sometimes you get the bear. 
Sometimes it gets you. Single stock daily leveraged and inverse ETFs from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. Welcome back to Investing with IBD. It's Justin Nielsen, your host, along with Arusha Paris, who joins me every week from O'Neill Global Advisors. He's a portfolio manager over there. And on the show this week, we've got follow through day Fami. Joe Fami is a portfolio manager over at Zor Capital. Uh, and it just seems like a lot of times when we have him on the show, whether it's IBD Live or the podcast, follow through days seem to just follow him. So that's thanks a nice for being ring on the show. Justin. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so Joe, let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, I mean, one of the hardest things about this last year or two years at this point has been just how brutal. Uh, the losses have been. Um, I mean, it's it's one of those things where I feel like you can never be reminded too often that that bear markets stink and they can take your money. Uh, you have to protect yourself. And uh, what kind of things have you been doing uh, during this time to protect yourself? And again, I don't want to get too negative because we've got the follow through day here, but I think it's important to remember just in case this doesn't work, you know, what kind of things, uh, what kind of guardrails do you have in place to protect yourself? Yeah, the probably one of the most top two or three questions I get is just that blanket question. I'm sure you guys get it as well. When do you sell? Yeah. And I think of selling in two ways, selling into strength or selling into weakness. As far as selling into strength, there are a lot of great sell rules in the O'Neill book, how to make money in stocks in chapter fourth edition chapters nine and 10, I believe, or 10 and 11, right around there. Uh, a lot of great sell rules into strength. But I want to focus more on uh, a lot of people have trouble stopping themselves out. I think it's one of the hardest things psychologically for people because mm -hmm. of one basic concept of fear. What if I sell and it turns around? Some people yeah. might say taxes is a factor. I don't think that's that big of a factor from people I talk to. It's what if I sell the stock and it turns around? And Speaking from my own experience, about 27 years of doing this, I struggled with that for the first 12 or 13 years. It's that shoulda, coulda, woulda. I, I, you just question yourself over and over and over until I finally decided you have to take the good with the bad. Meaning some stocks you get stopped out of are going to go significantly lower. And don't forget that because we tend to think about the ones we sell that turn around and go higher, which you can always get back into. But I just accepted once you make that decision and have some clarity, you got to accept some are going to go lower and some are going to go higher. And it is part of when you study some of the best traders throughout history in the market wizards books and so forth, just like the top three rules in real estate are location, location, location. The top three rules universally of all the best traders throughout history are cut your losses, cut your losses, cut your losses. And it's very important I believe that traders need to implement that as part of their strategy. So what uh, what is really kind of behind that? It's because th th it happens to everyone, especially when you're starting out, that what if I sell and it turns around uh, and goes up without me? Right. What 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 is explain a little bit about the psychology and, and kind of the mindset of what newer traders are, are you know, kind of struggling with at that point? When I was a newer trader, and I hate to sound so simple about this, but it's just the fact is I just assumed everything goes up. Yeah. 
You know, I remember some of the first stocks I <laughs> Wait, bought. Did you did you well, start trading in the 90s? 90s. That, that was, yeah, that was, <laughs> I was like us. You know someone started from... trading in the 90s with that mentality. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you just assume, what do you mean it doesn't go up forever? And when you I'm... look at history, and I know the O'Neill book points out a lot of those big winners throughout history, but your likelihood of finding the next Amazon or Apple is very, very low probabilities. Like to find a stock that's going to go up 10,000, 20,000% over 10 years, that's a very, or whatever, three, 4,000%. That's a low probability. So I just assumed everything went up. So I didn't understand. What do you mean cut your losses? What do you mean I have to sell something? What do you mean you ever have to sell something? And once you study history and realize that's not the way the market works, there are a lot of companies that come and go. You have to understand after a big move, sometimes, you know, you're just not going to get the highs and you have to just to be happy with the profits. And sometimes, you know, as David Ryan said in a recent interview, one key characteristic of successful traders should be humility. Mm-hmm. I think that humility comes with, hey, I'm just wrong on this. The markets proved me wrong on this stock. And you have to cut your losses as part of that as part of that. And I, I think, think that's, that's I think that's really kind of the, the basic thing that everyone first struggles with is that you're going to be wrong a lot in in this business, right? And so get used to it, make make those mistakes, learn from those mistakes, uh, and hang around long enough to to survive, to profit in you know good markets. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we fall in love with stories sometimes, and uh, that's true. You know, we we're we're like, oh, this is the next new cure for this, or this is the next new chip that's going to go into this, or the next new EV that's going to take over Tesla market, whatever the the concept is. And we fall in love with those stories. And there's nothing wrong with developing your thesis. There's nothing wrong with having some conviction. But at the end of the day, you develop that conviction or that theory and let the market prove you're right or wrong. And to your point, you have to accept you're going to be wrong more than you're right. And that's when the humility comes in to cut your losses. Yeah. And that's hard for so many people because you don't want to look stupid. No one likes being wrong. And uh, you know, if you're not willing to protect yourself from when you are wrong, I mean, that's that's when you're kind of asking for for trouble. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, uh, again, especially for, you know, smart people, really, uh, that aren't used to being wrong, that can even be uh, a bigger issue. So um, sometimes I mean, Bill hey, if like... I can leave a positive message, the market doesn't care about us. And uh, yeah. it's just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to be no, I'm just it's honest, like, hey, but but this stock is supposed to do this, but the market's supposed to do this. It's once you come to that realization, the market really doesn't care what your opinion is. And it's yeah. it's not to be negative. It's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and to get to your, you know, your question about guardrails. So someone might say, OK, well, what would be your line in the sand? What would be your area that you just say, hey, the markets proved me wrong. And that's where I lead to the 50-day and 200-day, depending on your time frame. Those are good guidelines because statistically, traditionally, that's where institutions support stocks. And if the institutions are no longer supporting them, then I want to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. So b- before we kind of get into using those as guardrails, are you typically only buying stocks that are above those levels? Yeah, the studies show that uh, 99% of the biggest winners throughout history are start above their 200-day, and I think 92% start above their 50-day. So when I talk about you know strong fundamentals in the earlier segment and talking about strong technicals, I'm usually, it's assuming I'm buying, I, I shouldn't assume, but it's, me, it's with the understanding I'm buying something that's already above 
it's mm-hmm. 50 day that's coming out of a strong base that looks good technically. So almost anything I'm going to buy, unless it's a special situation, almost everything is above it's 200 day with the 50 day above the 200 day. So they're going to most likely look good uh, for us technically as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So how, so may, maybe walk us through like a scenario, like what, when should people use the 50 or what about different types of investors? What if you're a really long-term investor and you don't want to trade that much, should you be using the 50 day or is a 200 day a little bit better match? When people tell me they're really long term, I find out afterwards they're really not. They just don't want to stop themselves out. So <laughs> then they're actually the market forces trader, and then all of a sudden they turn into a long term holder, yeah. and they're going to shareholder meetings and stalking the CEO on social media. Anyways, it's mm-hmm. uh, again. But if someone truly is longer term, my absolute line in the sand is to the two hundred day. So if somebody says, "Hey Joe, can you look at X Y Z or look at any stock?" Of course I. I love ideas. I'll look at anything. But if it's below the 200 day, if that is the area where long term holders, long term trend followers are no longer supporting the stock, then I don't want to hold a stock below the 200 day. So if you really are truly a long term holder, that would be my absolute line in the sand is the 200 day. Mm -hmm. And that might have been a little bit, again, tougher lately because so many of the stocks, as we mentioned at the outset, they were below their 50-day moving average lines. They were below the 200-day moving average lines. And even they were doing that even when the indexes were holding up relatively well because of the Magnificent Seven. So it was it was tougher to find those stocks that met those criteria. So did you just change your criteria or did you just not buy stocks? Sometimes you can use, um, as far as if it's below the 50-day, but let's say a stock is forming a base or a range, and the bottom of the range is right below the 50-day, there's a couple of strategies. Number one is you can use the low of that base that might be slightly below the 50-day. So maybe take a step back and look at the range of the Mm -hmm. stock. Another strategy is you can always sell half. So I like to use a Friday decisive close below the 10-week as my stop, uh, which roughly coincides with the 50-day. Because again, when you study all the biggest winners throughout history and all the charts that you helped uh, O'Neill mark up and so forth. A lot of the sell rules are when they break below the 10 week, especially on big volume. So that's what I like to use. Uh, But when people to the point of struggle with decisions, keep in mind one strategy is you can sell half. If you have 100 shares, you can sell 50. That way, if you're worried that it's going to turn around and go higher, you still have some. And if it continues lower, you hopefully don't get hit as bad by reducing position size. So you know, it doesn't have to be all or none is you can always sell a quarter or half to help give you a little bit of clarity on the position. And and going off on, on the position, what about just position sizing, like a 5% position, 3%, 10%, uh, you know, how, you know, a- any suggestions on that? Yeah, that's another common question. My guidelines about a five. And, and as you know, there's no right or wrong answer. Some people are very aggressive where they have you know, 25% positions, some newer traders start with 1% positions. I think five is a decent guideline. Another factor is there's intangibles. Is it a Microsoft or is it a ExxonMobil or a big blue chip company that's liquid? Or is it a small cap biotech where you might go a little bit higher on a more institutionally liquid leader? You might go lower on a riskier biotech. So 5% is a good guideline. And, uh, and that way, if you're going to cut your position size, maybe you could cut it down to three or to two it, it, just to reduce it in case it's right around that 50 day and you're unsure of what to do. 
Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about how this might play out in practice, because I think one of the harder things sometimes, especially for me, is like, you know, sometimes it's hard to take a big drawdown. It's just like, oh, if I see if I see the stock going down, um, I I don't want to take a big drawdown and I'm getting out too quick. Um, Sometimes, you know, the the 50 day moving average line or the 200 day moving average line, especially for a big winner, it can be pretty far away. You know, you could be looking at, you know, a more volatile stock or a stock that's been running for so long. And, you know, if you if you let it get down to the 200 day, you could be looking at a 30 percent correction, you know, something like that. Um, Do you do you change kind of your levels when you get a nice run or uh, do do you still kind of stick with those guardrails? I, I use the 10 week to your point. Sometimes some of those big winners that you're absolutely right. The 200 days way too far down. So that's why I use the 10 week. I'm just saying, know thyself, know your time frame. If your time frame is longer, t- longer term, maybe you take a smaller position and use the 200 day, but I don't use the 200 day on a lot of stocks. I like to use the 10 week uh, as sort of that medium term again, because most of the big winners hold that 10 week or that 50 day roughly. So that's more of my guideline. Some super shorter term traders might use the 10 day or the 21 day. So that's yeah. where I mean by you, you're adjusting your moving average depending on your time frame. But have something. And, <laughs> exactly. You have to have some guideline. And the reason why some people use those moving averages as a reference point, I just say, hey, if this is statistically where the institutions support a stock, they control the markets. They control the stocks. If they're no longer supporting it, I want to get out of their way. As long as they're supporting the trend, I want to do my best to stick with it. Mm-hmm. And, and so speaking of time frames, uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about the the 10 worst S&P uh, weeks of the year. So so what I'll do is I'll, I'll pull up a, uh, an image here that you sent us, Joe. And, and, and let's just walk uh, through this. So give me one second here. Yeah, this is an interesting uh, stat that I found on Twitter where I'm a big fan of following options activity and the mechanics behind the week of OPEX as a general trend. The week of options, regular cycle options expiration, which ends the third Friday of every month, tends to trend to the upside. It's not it's not exact. Don't come back at me and say it's you know, that's just a general trend. So keep in mind the general trend. I've noticed over 10 years of following option activity that the week after OPEX tends to be to the downside because the mechanics, I'm sure some options traders could explain this way better than me, but once a lot of those options expire, because most institutions trade regular cycle options, not weeklies. So once they expire or they roll those positions, the options market makers no longer have that exposure on their books. So the week after OPEX, they tend to sell some of their stocks. When you coincide that with So I've noticed on this uh, top 10 worst weeks, seven of these top 10 worst weeks are the week after OPEX. Most recently, the week after September OPEX and the week after October OPEX. So the lesson here is I like to, for people who are tactical, for people who vary their investment levels, for people who like to mix things up and so forth, you could use this as a general guide in the back of your mind when the end of September is really weak and you say, what happened? You can say, well, it's statistically over the last 50 years, the worst week of the year. So I like to use this as uh, for people who do like to vary their investment levels. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you sell ahead of time? Do you sell down your position ahead of time? Or is it just one of those things that allows you to kind of say, Hey, this could be 
the cause of this, not that something's wrong with my stock. And then you go back to using your guardrails. So what, what what's your kind of method of uh, operation there? And, and the main one is the main thing is the price action is the main thing. But let's say I like to trade around a core position. So to Arusha's point, you have a 5% position in XYZ and I really like it and I bump it up to seven and a half. Maybe if there's some strength the week of OpEx, I'll reduce it back down to five. So I might just take that added position off. Or let's say I have a position in something that's really, really weak and the price action overrides everything and we're heading into a seasonally weak period. I might just cut that position completely. So there is no right or wrong answer. A lot of times it's not a gut feel. It's just taking it with what's going on in the markets. For example, I even tweeted out the week of July OpEx, everything was getting really extended. We were extended from the 21-day, extended from the 50-day. A lot of stocks ran. So I decided just to sell into strength and reduce my uh, my exposure. Same thing with September, that week part of September. Uh, the last two weeks of September, I just decided to cut down some position sizes just so you don't get hit there. There's other strategies with option strategies and inverse ETFs, but I just try to keep it simple by reducing exposure. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, and are there are there ever any elements of, I mean, because a lot of this is about price action that you've talked about, and this is kind of an element of time. Are there any other elements of time that you use? Uh, I mean, for stocks, do you give them a certain amount of time to act right, or you toss them? Um, is there anything like that? It, it, you know, or on the flip side, sometimes you have to give things a little bit of time if you're too jumpy. And saying, oh, you know, it's it's two days and it still hasn't gone up 100 percent. I'm out of here. Um, you know, what, do you ever use time in those ways? One of the main ways I want to stress the point that the seasonality is secondary sentiment, seasonality, options, activity. Some of the stuff I look at, I want to stress is secondary to the main thing, which is the fundamentals and the technicals of a stock. So I try to sprinkle that on seasonally as far as time. November, December, and April are three of the best months, depending on what index you use and how far back you go. So I'm going to keep that in mind seasonally. Those are some of the stronger months. September, uh, excuse me, August, September are seasonally two of the weaker months. A lot of people are on vacation in the summer. So that's where I might use seasonality to say, this is when I can step on the gas or this is where I should lighten position sizes. But it's always secondary to the price action of stocks because I've also had some great runs during the summer. Right. I've also had some very big drawdowns during the fourth quarter. So yeah. at the end of the day, the price action overrides everything. Yeah, yeah and, and I think a, a good way to end this segment, and I think this is something that I've definitely learned from you, Joe, or had it hit you know, over and over again, just listening to some, a number of your videos, but the 21-day moving average. A lot of times when I've listened to Joe's analysis of stocks, when the stocks are running up, You'll always say, you know, wait, wait for them to pull back to the 21 day, wait for them to pull back to the 21 day. Talk a little bit about that and, and just kind of how you use that to, to manage your expectations. Yeah, that goes back to the time frame uh, conversation. Our, our good friend Brian Shannon uses the five day. He yeah. trades on a shorter term time frame than a lot of people. Nothing wrong with that. Everyone has different time frames. For me, a lot of the studies show that the 21 EMA is where in a good market, in a good power trend, strong stocks, strong ETFs tend to hold that 21 EMA. So for entry point, rather than chasing stocks on breakouts, I like to use a pullback to either add to names or to get into names that I might have missed on a breakout, because statistically that's a good area of sort of medium term support is that 21 EMA. Mm -hmm. 
Very good. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the stocks that are on Joe's radar right now. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Trading Tesla, sometimes you get the bear. Sometimes it gets you. Single stock daily leverage and inverse ETFs from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's objectives, risk, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. Welcome back to Investing with IBD podcast. It's Justin Nielsen here, your host, along with Arusha Paris, who is a portfolio manager over at O'Neill Global Advisors. And of course, we can't forget Joe Fami. Uh, portfolio manager over at Zor Capital, who is joining us this week uh, to kind of tell us all about guardrails, the market, and right now a few stocks. So, uh, first of all, before we start that, Joe, I want to just mention that your 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 X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it, it's funny. I mean, and you've got a lot of great Twitter spaces that you've been a part of with some great guests um, and and a lot of educational content. I mean, you're giving webinars, you know, sometimes on the weekend. Um, so what, what's the best way for folks to follow you uh, and, and get all this, uh, again, sometimes very funny content? Uh, yeah, and I apologize in advance for the dad jokes on my Twitter feed, but uh, it's, it's at Jay Fami, my first initial last name, also joefami.com. I try to blog regularly there, and I have an educational product, and in, in my contact information's on there as well. So, um, And I'll be hopefully starting a free newsletter as well, which will be on the website. Oh, uh, so uh, just providing some general market commentary and some stock ideas. I hope to start that off soon. So. Awesome. That's great to hear because I mean, your stuff uh, definitely just dovetails with ours, you know, so well. And, uh, and so it's, it's great reading your stuff and hopefully that's something that our listeners can uh, really thank, get into. Thank you for that. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. No, absolutely. Uh, so let's get into it. Uh, why don't we start with NVIDIA because um, this is starting to turn into the stock that you either uh, everyone is saying that you have to have, then everyone was looking at this has got to be a head and shoulders and it's probably done forever. Uh, it's gone up too much and everyone's looking at it. Um, what's what's your take on NVIDIA? Can it, can it go up again or should we really be happy with what we've gotten out of it so far? Uh, I, I think the stock still has some great upside over the next six to 12 months. Uh, I've talked about in previous uh, IBD Live and podcasts that we've talked about is um, some of the if this is a new bull market where it started in May and we just this ends up being a normal 10% correction and we resume to the upside, uh, bull markets throughout history are led by inventions that revolutionize our lives, whether it's railroads going back in history, television, airplanes, PCs, internet, smartphones, the list is endless. And what all of those things have in common is they help increase productivity. They help you get from point A to point B faster and increase efficiency and productivity. And a lot of smart people, way smarter than me, have been talking about AI being that next invention that's going to help speed up productivity. Uh, it'll take time to develop, but if this is a true new bull market or we end up longer term with a secular bull market, AI could be that new invention that leads us higher. And two of the best ways to play it is through NVIDIA and through Microsoft. So if this ends up uh, you know, being something that's for real, I which I think it is. I think Nvidia still has more upside. Just keep in mind, it just went from 100 or 200 to 500. So to digest, I've had so many people say, "What's wrong with Nvidia?" I said again, stop being so impatient. When a stock makes a big move, a consolidation is normal, and I feel like this is just a normal consolidation in the stock. 
Yeah, so I should say I, I do own some NVIDIA. Uh, and Joe, uh, maybe walk us through a little bit of what uh, NVIDIA is doing right now and, uh, you know, what some of maybe some of the key support levels and resistance areas. Yeah, so uh, in the last segment, this is a great example of when, when Justin asked about if it's below the 50-day. This is where it's a, it's a real-time example of sometimes just look at the range, which is roughly mm-hmm. between 400 and 500. So even though it's below the 50-day, full disclosure, it's my largest position you know, for clients right now. But uh, I'm using that range, and I like that the 200-day is catching up. So now it's no longer much lower than where it was a couple months ago. But that range, about 400 to 500, is a nice consolidation. I like how on Tuesday, the 31st, we undercut the mid-August low of 400, which is a nice round number. A lot of yeah. people put their stops in at nice round numbers, and the markets will take that out and rebound, which it did on strong volume on Tuesday. So I like the the area it's in now, and as long as it continues to prove itself and the market cooperates, I could see this thing running into their earnings, which are due out uh, the third week of November. And I still think they have a large backlog, uh, huge profit margins, and is the true way uh, to play AI. Mm-hmm. Now, it's probably worth taking a look uh, at the monthly chart because you, you you mentioned how far it's come up just this year. But I mean, you know, the, the, the monthly chart is literally off the chart, um, you know, because of, of how much this has come up. And it look, this was, you know, AI is something that's been talked about for a while. Um, before that, I mean, it was, you know, their chips in the in the graphic processing units, uh, you know, video games and, you know, more video, you know, and, and all of the the memory that that requires, all of the, you know, the calculations that are required in, in such a short period of time. So, you know, because AI has been talked about for a while and because these guys have been kind of mentioned at the forefront of it, is is it, again, kind of like not just the 100 to 400 that we've we've done this year, is it really kind of the four to 400 that we've done over the last decade here? I, I mean, look, sometimes I talked about earlier, it's hard to find those really big winners, but the ones that have become big winners, they really are growing their earnings and sales over time. Whether you look at the Home Depots and Walmarts over time that have consolidated and then resume higher. What is most impressive to me is in this last quarter, the guidance that came out in May, in the May quarter, they were supposed to do about $7 billion in revenues and they got it to $11 billion. I've yeah. never in the history of doing this, seeing a company guide 50% higher, and they still beat the 11 billion and did 13.5 because a lot of people uh, were skeptical and said, there's no way they're going to beat that 11. Jensen Wong, their CEO, is a very smart person, (laughs) one of the smartest CEOs out there, and I don't think he's going to guide higher and then miss. So I think he's still guiding conservatively. So then you see that big jump in earnings and sales that uh, the studies show that a lot of big winners already have that earnings on the table. You're going to see in the next quarter earnings, another two quarters of earnings on the table, another big jump in earnings and sales. And I think they're conservatively guiding and have a very big backlog uh, with their, you know, their AI chips, A100 and so forth, that to your point, go into all this processing power. So I, I still think as far as one of the greatest growth stories out there, there's still some upside with this stock. 
And so um, maybe let's let's go over to Microsoft and just take right. a look at, at Microsoft. The, the, now, speaking of, the of AI, you know, yeah. these guys are now, uh, it, it's amazing how they've reinvented themselves, right? Um, you know, before it was their operating system and Windows and uh, then this 15 year nothing and then it was cloud computing, and now uh, it, it seems like AI uh, could be the next chapter for, for Microsoft. Yeah, I like that they had strong uh, earnings recently last week. They are, their cloud uh, growth was very strong, I think in the mid-20% range or so, mid to low to mid-20s. Um, again, the reaction to earnings is just a function of the market where it came down to close that gap, but held that 50-day. I like the relative strength names that uh, this is a name that right when you have a follow through day, look at something near a new high, good guidance for the fourth quarter. The fourth quarter tends to be strong seasonally for uh, technology. Software is a great business with that that profit margins and software. Uh, that's why NVIDIA, a lot of people forget it. Yes, it's hardware, but with their CUDA platform software where they develop a lot of the AI stuff. So software development is just really, really nice profit margins. Microsoft's emerging out of the right side of the space, sort of with a double bottom where that late September low took out the August low. And now it's building the right side of the base and continues to look great. So uh, for a mega cap name, that's it's pretty impressive to grow your earnings and sales yeah. um, in that sort of 10 to 25 percent range. So uh, it's still one of the true ways to play AI um, as far as software goes. Yeah. And, and also on MarketSmith, the, the blue dot is lighting up here for mm -hmm. Microsoft. So meaning that the relative strength plans already hit a 52 week high, but the price hasn't. So this is one of those kind of leading indicators that we'll look for to, to see, try to identify stocks that might have some subtle strength going on. Uh, and you're not really seeing it in the price just yet. You can almost feel it in the tape where I definitely agree that we still have to get a lot. We have to get through a lot of, you know, some headwinds right now in the markets. I'd still like to see again some more accumulation and so forth. But I watch the tape all day, and it just feels like any little tension being relieved off the market, Microsoft turns green. You almost feel like it wants to go higher. You just need the M and can slim the market wind at our back, so to speak, and some support at our back. So as long as the market cooperates, I feel like this one could see uh, new highs into year end. Mm -hmm. Now, you kind of talked about this earlier about, you know, the earnings reaction, uh, nice gap up, and then it you know almost immediately came came back down, kind of like said, nope, not yet, and then turned right around. Um, how, how do you as an investor kind of stomach that kind of volatility in what is what you would think is a, a little bit more stable of a stock? Entry point is very important. In the last segment, we talked about that 21 day. So I like to enter stocks around consolidations. So that gives you the room depending on your time frame. If you buy a stock that's consolidating around 50 and it's 55 around the earnings, you do have about a 10% cushion. But uh, I'm not a fan of chasing names, especially the mega cap names that trade truer to form and tend to hug that 21 day. So the way I deal with the volatility is do my best to get those strong entry points. And if I miss it, I don't have FOMO. I used to have FOMO, that fear of missing out. I don't have it anymore. I, David Ryan had a great line of FOMOs for the week and FOMOs overcome with discipline. And the discipline is in um, entering stocks at strong entry points 
to give you that cushion to deal with some potential volatility around earnings. Now, now you mentioned uh, before when you had a stock, you already owned a stock. If it was if it was running up, maybe turn in a seven percent position, you lighten up or you sell half or or something like that. What about when you're initiating a position, starting to build into a position? Are you slowly scaling into that position? Maybe starting at a two percent, moving it up to a three or four, uh, and then eventually to a five. Yeah, I like to I like to start with about a half position. So roughly a five percent position is a full position for me. So I'll start with about a two or two and a half and then see how the stock acts. Because if it works, at least I have some. And that's that also overcomes FOMO. I call them sort of placeholder positions that if it goes higher, at least you own some. And uh, if it breaks down, at least I'm only stopping myself out with half the position. So hopefully it doesn't hurt the portfolio too badly. But I usually start to scale in. And if, you know, for example, real time around the follow through day, if the next few days are backing and filling on light volume and then we get another follow through day, you can add and make it a three, four percent position. Maybe try to add on a pullback or if the market shows more strength and the market or the stock proves itself. Uh, but I, I, it's, it's going back to that point. Too many people feel when they get into a stock or out of a stock, it has to be an all or none decision. I'm a fan both on buying a stock and selling a stock of scaling in and scaling out to help control those emotions and to see how a stock uh, acts around uh, certain key levels. Yeah. Let's go ahead and uh, go to our final stock. And this is one that uh, we've talked about before. Uh, Uber. What's uh, what's your take on Uber? Is this is this AI or is this something else? I like the uh, the IPO base on the weekly chart. It's working on an IPO base. Uh, I also just, I like stocks that become verbs where it's not ride sharing. It's Uber, like, uh, you know, it's not a soda, it's a Coke, you know, stuff like that. So, um, I like the undercut of that recent range in that 42, 43 range Their their last earnings. I think there's a lot of market share, uh, to be taken here. Their last earnings were the first time they were cash flow positive. You can see the big jump in the, uh, quarterly earnings. And I just think it's pulled back as a function of the market. It's really close to that 200 day. I like this one longer term. Again, full disclosure, I've, I have positions in all three of these stocks I've mentioned. Um, the 200 day is going to be my stop because I do like it longer term. Uh, but I just think it was a function of the market being weak, but they have market share with more deliveries since they have uh, a lot of cars out there. They're starting to sign up partnerships as ways to, you know, they have sort of the logistics and the infrastructure to use a lot of the drivers, whether it's for food deliveries and other things. So I like it longer term, and I think it's uh, it still has more upside over the long run. Now, it looks like they're reporting in six days. So how do you generally handle a position uh, going into earnings? Um, I'm in this one. I'm about even on this one. So it's not a full position for me. So that's how if I have a cushion and I'm holding something longer term, it's no problem. When I'm about even on this one, uh, it's just a half position. So I always say, you know, factor in whatever, maybe a 10 or 20% downside, not being negative, just more thinking of, okay, if you have a 2% position and it drops 20%, it's only going to hurt you 40 basis points to the overall portfolio. So in a round number, a hundred thousand uh, portfolio, it's going to hurt you $400. I can live with that. But if you do get some upside, then that's that's how I adjust when I don't have a cushion over earnings is I keep it like a half percent position because I don't want to say worst case scenario, but let's say they miss and guide lower and it drops about 20 percent, which would be big. You have to look at the option straddle to see what the expected 
earnings move is on a lot of these stocks, but that's how I handle it with a light position. If you're not comfortable holding over earnings, you can wait till the earnings and buy it afterwards. So there's so many strategies around earnings, but one way I deal with it is when I don't have a cushion is a lighter position. Mm-hmm. How much how much weight are you putting on the fundamental story of it? Uh, you know, I mean, there's certainly the technical, how much cushion you have, um, you know, and again, you've already warned that sometimes it's uh, the story that's kind of getting people into trouble because, you know, it's, it's their excuse for not selling when they should. Um, but, you know, especially going into earnings, does does the story kind of play into this at all for you? I feel like every time I get an Uber, the price is absolutely ridiculous. I was just going to say that the the other day. Could not not be fundamental story. From the airport, I'm going like two miles. I'm like fifty-seven dollars. I'm like, well, I'm too lazy to walk, so I guess I'll have to eat it. (laughs) Here we are. Better buy more Uber stock to make that back. I mean, look, I don't fall in love with any stocks. I'm going to have a stop at the two hundred day on this one. I think that. Uh, there's a lot more Uber drivers out there. And when I talk to the drivers, they've been telling me, unfortunately for the drivers, that they're taking a less percentage or it used to be 50-50. It's like 30-70. Forgive me if I don't know the exact numbers, but Uber's taking a larger percentage. And I asked the drivers, why is that? They say, because there's so many drivers out there, they can do that. So I think that is helping to improve their margins as well. But I like the story. I think a lot of people in the in this economy, they might not be able to afford a car with gas prices. They're taking more Ubers. So I like the story. But again, I don't marry anything as far as stocks. And I'm still going to have a stock in, a stop in place. But I do like the fundamental story here, especially the cash cash flow positive that was reported last quarter. Yeah. Well, hey, Joe, it's it's always so great to have you on. I mean, again, you're 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 funny, you're nice, and you bring follow through days as a gift almost every time you're on. So we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, as a reminder for folks, you know, at, at, at JoeFami.com, you can get more of his information. Follow him at JFami uh, for for X slash Twitter. Um, and again, just great having you on. Thanks. thanks no, for being th- here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I always love talking markets, and you guys make it easy. So. Uh, as always, thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, that's going to wrap it up for us this time around. I hope you join us next week because we're going to have John Kosar back on the show. He's from Asbury Research. Uh, he's probably going to share with us some of the changes that he's done to his Asbury 6 model. Uh, also kind of let us know what kind of ETFs he's been seeing the money flowing into uh, and just get an overall sense of what he's looking at. So hope you join us for that. Thank you so much for watching us this time around. We'll see you next time. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.